Hey, you're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matt Perpetua. Uh, this episode uh, features Sam Humphreys. He is a comic book writer. He's a really cool guy. This episode is actually uh, something that originally came out over the Patreon in December 2020. And I'm releasing to you now because it's a good episode and I feel like, you know, more people should hear it, for one. But also, um, I just didn't want to have, like, a break week because I have a bunch of episodes that I'm about to do kind of all in a row uh, with a lot of people who I've been meaning to have on for a long time. You know, there's a lot of, like, scheduling stuff, especially with, you know, with Big Shots. I mean, you probably know about this, like, Big Shots, they're, they can be hard to get. But yeah, big shots coming up. So yeah, you can look forward to that. And also coming up on the Patreon soon, I'm going to be doing a new series. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what that is yet, but uh, it's going to be me and another person talking about a particular record in depth for I think three or four parts. But, you know, some other cool stuff being planned for that. I think I'm going to do a lot more series in that uh, coming up. Kind of maybe a little bit like Street Fight, if you know what I mean. Where they'll just do kind of these mini series. And that's the mini series is actually some of my favorite stuff about Street Fight. But, you know, patreon.com slash fluxblog. Hit it up. Get on it. You know, uh, this, maybe this episode should give you an indication of the quality that I have put behind a paywall. So anyway, I'm going to throw to the other episode and I will do another intro. Just bear with me. I don't feel like editing that thing out. Listening to a Patreon exclusive episode of the Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Petra, and I thank you for subscribing. Uh, that's how you're hearing this, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, you're keeping uh, things going for me. This episode features Sam Humphreys, who is a noted comic book writer, among other things. Uh, Sam is a really cool guy, and I, I recommend that you follow him on Twitter. He's a just a fun dude. Uh, we're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff. Just this kind of a freeform conversation. We're going to talk about Prince, uh, Minneapolis in general, uh, Radiohead, Beck, uh, just live venues in general. I have a weird story about seeing, seeing Steely Dan in Los Angeles. Uh, we talk about imports, we talk about drum and bass, we talk about just a whole lot of stuff. Uh, it's a, just a, a fun time. Uh, I hope that you have a good time with it. And uh, here we go. We're going to listen to this episode uh, with me talking to Sam Humphreys. Sam Humphreys, uh, tell me who you are and what you do. I I am Sam Humphreys, uh, commonly known as Sam the Hammer Humphreys. 
which is a, a, a nickname I got on a podcast that I co-hosted years ago. Um, and uh, I am a comic book writer. I've written for Marvel and DC. I've written things like... Um, Nightwing and Harley Quinn and Green Lanterns, uh, and I'm also a, a TV show host. I hosted 450 episodes of DC Daily for uh, DC's propaganda arm, DC Universe. Um, <laughs> and I think germane to this podcast, in terms of my uh, my music cred, I grew up in Minneapolis. So that means you've met Prince. Exactly. Prince and I used to kick it all the time. I oh God, I was told the story years ago. Um, and I have no idea how true it is that like maybe you can verify this, that Prince had a particular Boston market that he liked and went there all the time or he would just I don't, oh I don't know he would hang out at it, but he would order from it or his entourage would come through and they would just buy like a ton of Boston market. And then, you know, <laughs> and I mean, no one I know about Prince that does not seem like completely like impossible no no not at all i don't i don't know that story i can't verify that but there's a ton of stories i mean a, a lot of them are, are just kind of minnesota lore because people in minnesota love prince even if prince represents a lot of things that some of the provincial people in minnesota would not embrace but uh he uh and, and paisley park you know people go like oh paisley park's in minneapolis is actually way the fuck out there it's in chaska Minnesota. It is, it is far out. So I'm not surprised that there is a suburban chain restaurant. Wait, wait, how far out is it? Like 45 minutes? Like, God, you know, when I was, yeah, probably solid 45. When I was growing up, Chasco was like separate from the suburban mold spore of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. But by now, I think Chaska is like solidly absorbed into the metro area. But it's still, it's still 45 minutes to an hour, I bet. So um, is it sort of like living in the valley in the Los Angeles terms? I I, say, I think it's even further out. I would say that like St. Paul is kind of like the valley of Minneapolis. And then like um, the, the suburbs around it or like Bloomington, Eden Prairie. None of this means anything to you. Shout out to all the Minnesota people listening to this who are like cheering on my, my Eden Prairie references. Uh, I think that would be like the valley. I think Chaska would be like Simi Valley. Or like maybe even like Ventura or Oxnard, um, like it's only Minneapolis if you're not from Minneapolis. In which case, that like works. That's close enough. Okay, so the, the, but the point being, this Prince is just way the fuck out there. He's way the fuck out there. So I'm not surprised that there's like a. He, he probably had his own favorite chilies. He probably had a favorite, uh, you know, Olive Garden. Any anything like suburban, provincial. I bet he just kind of had to frequent because he liked it out there. He liked it quiet but there's all sorts of stories about how prince used to like just ride his bike around uh empty mall parking lots in the western suburbs uh stories about prince going to movies or, or renting out entire um uh, movie theaters to, for him and his friends and stuff like that um he you know he was he was a beloved figure he he was indeed uh as i've said before and i will say again he was the greatest minnesotan of all time yeah, I don't think anyone. I mean, I guess maybe like, who would be number two? Like Jimmy Jam and Terry I Lewis as number two I, and three? I, I would give him number two and number three. I, you know, I, I, probably there's there's like politicians, like maybe Hubert Humphrey, who was a vice president for the for a time. And your father. Uh, 
and my father. No, we have very close last names, no relation. Uh, but uh, there's also like Paul Wellstone, who is a great um, beloved progressive senator who unfortunately died in a plane crash. So uh, he's, he's 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 very well loved. Um, and that, you know, Charles Schultz of the Peanuts, he's from there. But, you know, he didn't he didn't really claim Minnesota the way that Prince claimed Minnesota. Like Prince got world famous. He could have moved anywhere in the world. He could have been like Lenny Kravitz buying out an estate in Brazil or some shit like that. But he stayed in Minnesota. He lived in, you know, when he wasn't touring or whatever, he lived in Minnesota. That was his home base the whole time. Yeah. Born, lived and died in Minnesota. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somewhere, somewhere in the top five, top ten is, of course, Dan Jurgens, the uh, writer, comic book writer, artist who killed Superman in the nineties. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those things where it's like I don't think everyone will know that, but if you just mention like he's the guy who killed Superman, they might actually at least get that one uh, issue number seventy-five cover in their head. That's right, with the black band, the armband. In well, of the, of the actual cover, which has a kind of like the uh, it's almost like a flag of the cape. Yes. Yeah. 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 In the rubble. So yeah, Dan, Dan Jurgens was basically like the uh, like the DC artist of the early to mid 90s. He was like the flagship guy yeah. and writer he, and writer. Yeah, absolutely. He was definitive and he's kind of like one of the last of that era of creators who could like draw two books and write two books in a month, you know, like the way that John Byrne used to do. Um, I don't know that Dan ever met that number that I just said, but he, he, he was very prolific. Um, and, uh, and he's a great guy and he killed Superman. Not even Prince can say that. No, I mean, I think Prince would have, if Prince, uh, made Batman funky, that's, that's something. He did. He did. I, I think, I think Prince would have sneered at Superman and that would have been enough. That would have killed Superman right there. Like one of those patented dismissive Prince sneers. It could it can topple anyone. It could topple nations. I feel like uh yeah, in eighties in pop terms, like Prince is absolutely Batman to uh, Michael Jackson's Superman. Ooh, that is a good comparison. That is a good so let's expand it. Like who I mean, like I guess you kinda have to give Madonna but- to Wonder Woman, I guess. Wonder right? Woman, yeah. Um, almost by default. Almost by default. Uh, kind of gendered, but let's go with it for now. Uh, I mean, Supergirl would, like... would be Janet Jackson. So, oh, that's very good. That's very Colonel good. Logic. Yep that that's excellent. Who would like? Who would George Michael be? Whew, good question. They were working the DC. Maybe universe. the Flash. Maybe the Flash. He could be the Flash. Uh, does not seem Green Lanternish to me. No, Green Lantern is like two by the book. He's a cop. Yeah. Maybe Bruce Springsteen is, is, is Green Lantern because they're so high and mighty. Yeah, that feels right. And Bruce has like this kind of indomitable will. And that's like the that's like that's the true. most positive spin on the Green Lantern. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that you spent like at least a couple of years writing Green Lantern and you're straight to another cops. They're cops. Oh, they're cops. they're cops. That's how it works. Yeah. All cops are bastards. <laughs> Even if they're wielding a green cosmic ring. Yeah, exactly. They're still ACAB. Uh, and, and, you know, the the Barry Allen, the Flash, was a cop, too. He was a detective. He was a police scientist. Yeah. Yeah, I've never really liked those characters very much. And I think that's maybe part of it. They're, they're just kind of real squares. Too much and, authority. Yeah. 
they they were they're born in that era where kids who read comics wanted to feel how cool it was to be an adult like a journalist at a big city newspaper ooh he's a he's a space cop and a hotshot pilot oh he's like a philanthropist and then like as you move into the 60s when marvel comics comes along it's like kids who want to sympathize with people who feel like outsiders yeah, and, and then you get to, to the '80s, and it's X Men, and they're they're not even really functional adults; they're just just uh, outsiders, just full yeah. on full time outsiders. Exactly, exactly. I've always thought the X Men were kind of like the hipsters of superheroes. They're always, like, I, would, they're, I mean, for in a lot of different ways too. Yeah, I would buy into that. I I think they're definitely like. You know, sometimes it feels like the X-Men are better off on their own, like in their own universe, let's say. Like or they on their own island, let's say. World. Or on their, perhaps, perhaps, or a network of islands. Uh, just, to, you know, like they, they're, they're cooler if you don't have to, like, deal with, like, Captain America being their neighbor or whatever. Um, so I can see how, like, hipsters would, like, like Krakow is or Williamsburg. <laughs> yes uh but oh god i think with the x-men and the other marvel superheroes is they kind of force the other marvel superheroes to look bad because like it forces you into a thing like wait this is captain america does not give a shit about like these genocides right <laughs> you know yeah it just starts making all these other people who are supposed to be cool look uncool and it makes them their moral uh calculus seem very strange um in ways that i think is like kind of realistic but it's like does no favors to the people who have to write those books. Yeah, I, it's it's like very realistic if you really want to get into like the, you know, the fact that America is in a forever war and America has ignored several genocides. But is that what people who read comics besides you and me really want out of Captain America? I, I don't think so. I think yeah. we can get pretty close, but uh, it's 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 one of those things where you start pulling on that thread, the whole sweater falls apart. Oh yeah, like that song. Yeah, if I mean, I think <laughs> to destroy Captain America. I think we've proven uh, culturally that what we want from Captain America is for him to be really hunky and to have kind of a homoerotic relationship with his best friends. Yeah, I think that works. That's by want, far like, the most popular Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> you want like a himbo who like will just kind of like flirt with anyone. Yeah, like a real heart of gold, you know, golden retriever with a shield. Yeah, there you go. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I like so, that. So, OK, so so I have to assume that you were going to a lot of like shows uh, growing up. Yes, yes. I went to a ton of shows growing up. Um, in fact, my first show, I know you will appreciate this. My first show was in the Target Center, which is not a great place to see a show, but it was the U2 Zoo TV tour with the Pixies as the opening band. Oh, God, I'm so envious. I didn't get to see them until Pop Mart.
Oh yeah. Well, that was just that was just right after. I guess they did two Zoo TV tours or two two post Octung Baby tours. Um, but but they boy, just, that they Zoo just TV toured, tour they was toured Zoo TV special. a long time, at least three years. Yeah, yeah. And I watched. Um, there's that one DVD, the live DVD. I think they shot it somewhere in Australia. It's not a good like concert movie if you've seen it. Uh, but it, it definitely is different from the one that I remember. Because I, I think, like, midway through, Macfisto started making an appearance. Oh, right. Like, oh, the, you know what it was? It was post-Zuropa. It was post-Zuropa. That's mm. what it was. Yeah, I think Mephisto starts a little bit before Zuropa comes out. But I think at the mm. phase you saw them, the thing that was in that place was, this, was a thing they were calling the Mirror Ball Man. So yes, like, that's, what, that's what Bono was up. Yeah, so that's what he's doing in the encore. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. It's not as a uh, fully formed character just yet. Like, I think you have to really work your way up to being like, you know what? I'm going to play a devil character and have a monologue in the middle of this rock show. That's a <laughs> that's a real that's like a, a level of hubris. That I think actually almost no other rock stars have ever attained. I don't think even David Bowie, who was an actor, ever went into that mode. No, I don't think so. But you know, he really honed his teeth on that and the um. On the Joshua Tree tours, and I guess Rattle and Hum era too, um, but you know, just that um, that that sanctimoniousness, the sanctimoniousism, um, and kind of pushing how far he could take that. Yeah. So yeah. So Octoon Baby and Zoo TV is kind of like snapping the other way, and having like you know these fictional characters that are kind of a distancing mechanism. So, you know, initially yeah. the fly and that's like he comes out in the first like chunk of songs is the fly, uh, the song, the fly, which is my favorite U2 song. Ooh, uh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's like once he gets into the characters, he's kind of like, well, if, if they listen to, to Bono talk about Nicaragua for 90 seconds during the Joshua Tree tour, then they'll listen to my character talk about whatever random bullshit for however, you know, five minutes. He was like crank calling George crank Bush. Crank calling George Bush every night, every night. They, you know, that, that was the yeah. 90s. You couldn't just block a number like that. It wasn't that easy. Let's go, oh God, Bono again. <laughs> and it's funny because later on, like, he would just be like, you know, calling up the the presidents just to hang you know, yes just to be exactly and try, to, and try to sell them on like aids uh yes like, like helping out join uh, red AIDS causes join red um so yeah so that's my first tour yeah i mean in, in all seriousness bono's done a lot of good with that oh, stuff no i, I don't think he actually gets enough credit no for question that. yeah yeah uh, I, but it is an interesting point <laughs> that he went from crank calling george bush about the iraq war to uh Hanging with the Kennedys and Tony like, Blair and all that kind of stuff. Like legitimate meetings with George Bush's son. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, G- George Bush being forced to learn who Bono is on a legitimate basis. Do you think George W. Bush knew you too? He must have. He wasn't that old. Yeah, because he was, he was a frat boy, right? Like he was a frat boy during like Joshua Tree era. Like what frat boy didn't know like... Uh, where the streets have no name. How old is George? I think George W. Bush is probably slightly older than you two. I think he would okay. probably be in his... So maybe I'm he was guess a late 70s. Mid to late 60s now? Yeah. Yeah, but I think... 
I just find it unrealistic that he wouldn't have an awareness of you two in the eighties. Cause like that is a phase where he's not, he is adrift. He's just like with baseball teams and things like that. He's like, like his whole, like oh, he's that whole middle yeah. act of his life where he's just kind of drifting around before settling yeah. into things. And you know what? Uh, as much as I really truly dislike George W. Bush and yes. virtually everything he ever did and stood Absolutely. for, there is something, uh, nice about knowing that one of the presidents did that even even if it was like a, a, a son of incredible privilege there is something nice in knowing that you can just totally just fuck around like be totally lost through like your entire 20s and 30s and then yeah. turn it around <laughs> some people have a gap year this president had a gap decade that's yes that's that's the george w bush message he he has he had to have been familiar with you two just from the baseball stadium. You know that they played a U two song or two in heavy rotation on the loudspeakers in the stadium. I don't know if I've ever actually heard a U two song at a baseball game. No, would I guess maybe like Pride or Sunday Bloody Sunday would kind of get thrown in there. I guess later yeah. on, maybe like a Vertigo. Yeah, that, but that would be after he became president. Yeah, um, I don't, let's. Maybe you can get him on the show and you can ask him. Wait, Bono or, or, George, or George W. Bush? The former U.S. President George W. Bush. <laughs> maybe you can, maybe you can throw a shoe at him and at the bottom is taped uh, a little piece of paper that says, will you be on my podcast? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so you, you two is my first show, but I... Saw many, many shows at First Avenue, which is what a is that place like? I've never actually better, been. It is is a far better uh, venue than the Target Center for sure. Um, and I and I honestly didn't quite know how good I had it until I moved away, um, because First Avenue is a it's a club for sure. It's a small club, no seats. Um, I'm bad at estimating like capacity, but. Uh, I'm trying to think like what a like a venue that you and I might have both been to that would be comparable. Like um, what, what would be the most similar thing in LA? Maybe the Troubadour. You've been to the Troubadour? No, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 about the size of the Troubadour, maybe a little bit bigger. They both have balconies. Um but first Ave was like very dingy, always dark. Um, and always just a blast to be in. Like everybody just loved being at First Avenue because it was such a it's it is such a treasure of Minnesota. Like so if you're a music fan, First Ave is just the place to be. Um, and also, you know, crucially, I think we could say this for a, a lot of venues all over the world is that they embraced all ages nights and all ages shows. Um, uh, and also just cheap ass tickets. Like I saw Radiohead there on their first U.S. tour for like nine bucks. What was it like seeing them at that period of time? Like, so this is like when they're touring for Pablo Honey. Pablo Honey, yes, uh, that was great. I here here's the thing is that I didn't know, or at least you know, in, in Minnesota we didn't have a lot of visibility on Britpop um, until the like the 
the most I knew about Britpop was Elastica, but as a scene and being like, oh, this is like Radiohead comes from this scene, but here are the ways in which they're kind of different, even at the Pablo Honey era, was lost on me. They were just a band from Britain with that huge hit that we all loved. And I loved Pablo right, Honey. They were just an MTV band. They, they, exactly. They're an MTV band. They had some like grunge-ish elements to them in terms of, I mean, beyond that little crunchy guitar riff and creep, they have the moroseness, the sadness, uh, the obligatory uh, acoustic number on the album. Um, but seeing them then, you, I did kind of get a vibe of like, oh, these guys are like if touring America for the first time, possibly in America for the first time. Um, and because it was their first album, like it was a short show. And I'm not sure if I'm remembering this correctly. No, okay, so I also saw James in that same era. And that was one where they were like, they only had that one hit song, Laid, and America knew nothing about their back catalog, so they played Laid twice. Uh, and they just played <laughs> it the second time as a as like a ballad. They slowed it down and later in the show. And um, the uh, the lead singer says, let's get Laid slowly and i was like oh man he must get so much action off that line all across america his bed is on fire passion and love the neighbors complained about the noises of love but she only comes when she's on But there was a sense at the Radiohead show that, like, there's there's a limit to how much they're going to be able to play here. Because uh, that's that's what I have is Pablo Honey. And I don't know, maybe they threw some B-sides in there. I don't really remember that, but it's possible. I didn't see them until kind of like the near the end of touring for the Benz. Ooh. So that's, still, that's still pretty early on. But at that yeah. point, they've got like a, a pretty good chunk of material there. Oh, yeah. And that's like probably they're like they were already feeling very restless creatively. Um, yeah, I'm pretty we, sure we should, like, we I'm pretty sure Lucky was in that show. show. Which was in the show? I'm pretty sure they played Lucky around that time. I think Ooh, Lucky kind of okay. goes back a little ways. I think Electioneering as well. Interesting, interesting. Electioneering, the forbidden Radiohead song. I know. <laughs> the, the, the one everybody... <laughs> it's the one that they hate. It's the one they hate. And, exactly. Uh, and it's funny because, like, I, I I absolutely can figure out exactly what they don't like about that song. But if you take that song out of that record, it really disrupts the feng shui. And that's the only song they had like that at the time. Yeah, I can totally see that. Um, and I, and I, I trust your skills as the uh, as the the playlist master. But it, it is the song that kind of sticks out. Um, and I. I feel like there's an interesting parallel between electioneering and um, I'm looking at the, okay. Between that and ignore land from automatic for the people. Um, not only are they thematically 
relevant to each other, but they both kind of like come in and take a departure from the vibe that from albums that have very strong, unique vibes. And then these, both these songs are like departures from that. And they're both songs that I habitually skip over when listening to those albums. Oh, I like Ignoreland a lot. They, really? they, REM never played Ignoreland until the last tour they did, uh, which was for Accelerate. Oh, and shit. it was an election year. And it was just like it really worked. And like it fit those Ele- Accelerate songs better than it ever fit the uh, Automatic stuff. Well, they didn't tour for Automatic, but, you know, right. it, just, it just didn't fit in. Like when they were touring for Monster, it was suddenly just kind of like, well, we've got these Monster songs. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, another, I, know, I know what you mean. It's like it is like a, this. Like a, I think I think records kind of need that dose a lot of times, where you need to kind of have like something that kind of uh, knocks the balance up or like wakes you up a little bit midway yeah. through. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it kind of uh, uh, makes you appreciate the vibe when you come back to it at the end of the song. Like you don't get lulled into sleep with it, like a like a, a somatic kind of kind of effect. Um, interesting because I never use that word and you t- tweeted about the word Soma recently. <laughs> <laughs> right. My point being like, you know, I just think that if a band has a, a song and it's extremely good, it has to be extremely good, not just any song. Yeah. The title should be, if the title is kind of a weird title, if it's not just a generic phrase or word, the title should be like retired, like a, like a, yes. like a jersey in sports. Yes, like so, Paranoid like Android. The Strokes the stroke should never have been able to call a song Soma. Absolutely not. No way. Mm-mm. That was reaching. And, it's like that, and that's like an okay song, but it's like, what is it? Like the, the ninth best song on their first start record? Come yeah, on. no. I, I feel like the only artist that could get away with stealing a title like that, like the only artist who could do like a song titled Everybody Hurts is like Father John Misty because you know he knows he's full of shit. Yeah, and the, well, there's people who've done kind of ironic uses of titles. Like, um, just on the topic of Radiohead, there's the band A Giant Dog, and on their second record, mm. they have a song called Fake Plastic Trees. Oh. Completely different song. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it, but it's like, that's like a pretty good joke, I think. And I don't think it's like, uh, it's not, you know, it is It is kind of, it's definitely a joke title. It has nothing to do with the lyrics or the song in any way. Yeah. But, uh I think like that's that's permissible if it's if it's meant to be humorous, but if it's meant to be just like no, I just I mean I still get annoyed by how many people, in re- especially in recent years, have named songs borderline. Like no, that's Madonna's. No, song. yeah, you can't no, you call can't, a song you borderline. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. Um, you know I don't care if you're Solange or Tame Impala. Sorry. No. Or or, or um or uh. Who else did it? Was uh, Ariana Grande also did a borderline? It's like no, like you're all fantastic. I I highly respect right. all three of you, but yeah, it's I, Madonna's I, song. You can't call a song "Stairway to Heaven" either. No, no way. I, I and I don't know if this is like my Minnesota favoritism speaking, but I feel like an exception to this. It's not a song, but when the replacements called their album "Let It Be," because they were absolutely laughing their asses off about it. You know, something that didn't occur to me till pretty recently is that the Beatles have Let It Be, obviously, but mm-hmm. Let It Bleed came out before Let It Be. So oh, I, Let I'm it not bleed really before? sure. This. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah, because Let It Bleed came out in 1969 and Let It Be came out in 1970. 
Damn. So it's like it would, yeah. So it's like within a year, and like because like they were always reacting against each other. It's like that must have been kind of like I, I don't know. It doesn't. It's not like a joke or something. It's just really similar titles, and you can kind of tell that Paul McCartney may have maybe he saw the title "Let It Bleed" and like, oh, I think "Let It Be" would be better. Like we should all let it be. <laughs> you know, he's that, that like, seems like, like an extremely Paul like, thing. Yeah, Paul look at it and be like, that's almost a good title. It's just not sincere enough. I know. Or something like that. Or, or, or maybe it's him waving the white flag. He's like, actually, we're well on our way to breaking up. I know you guys are going to be touring arenas well throughout the 80s and 90s. So we're just going to let it be in terms of their their rivalry. Yeah. Well, you know, Paul plays all the, all those things on his own. I think, I think you know, I don't know. I don't know if Paul necessarily would have wanted things to go as they went necessarily, even though he was the one who broke up the Beatles officially. And he's the one who sent out the, like the, yeah. the letters announcing it. But I think he ultimately got what he wanted, which is to do whatever he wanted without people telling him he couldn't do it. And to play concerts of Beatles songs without the other guys having to be in the way. <laughs> yep. That's it. And, and tour and, again. He probably just yeah. wanted to like miss touring. Have you seen Paul McCartney live? I've not. No, Mm-mm. I've seen him a couple times now, um, and you know his show is like seventy percent Beatles songs, and like right, you just yeah. can't go wrong. It's just like right. A, that's and and seeing a person like Paul McCartney, I think also like a, a Bob Dylan, uh, even Prince when Prince was alive, though he was still relatively young, so mm-hmm. it wasn't quite the same effect. But you have this thing of like, oh, I'm looking at a historical figure. Right. Like Bob yeah. Dylan's a historical figure. And you're yeah. just like, there he is. He's on stage. It's like if you could just watch a Shakespeare play, you know? Yeah. And like Shakespeare's <laughs> yeah. directing the play. Yeah. It's it, yeah, but it, it has that thing where you're like, oh wow, this is uh that, that's so it's, it's such a weird feeling to, to be aware of it. Yeah, and I feel like the 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 recent trend or recent in the past, I don't know. 10 to 15 years of like touring off a classic album, like performing the entire classic album is like a, like a, a weird version of that. Like if you don't have, like if you're massive attack, you can't just play the hits for the entire show because you just don't have that many hits. Um, but you can play mezzanine uh, and people will love it. And which I went to go see and loved it. Right, so I, I know in that tour they were also playing covers. They weren't playing previous old songs, but they were throwing in covers. Yes, yeah, it was it was a wild twist on the format, which I appreciate because this was like maybe two years ago, and by that point, the the we're gonna play our the our our entire classic album back to front like that's not it, it's been done. So I appreciate them trying to figure out a, a different way to do it. So every other song, as I recall, was a cover. And um, the album were they doing they like were weren't they doing like Bella Lugosi is dead? They did Bella Lugosi's dead. I'm trying to remember what else they played. They covered a a reggae song. It wasn't Bob Marley. Maybe it was like Peter Tong or something like that. Some something that was like fairly recognizable. Um, uh, but that was cool because you could kind of feel like. Oh, like these are the songs that informed the album Mezzanine. I don't think they played anything that came after Mezzanine. Yeah. 
I'm not really a big fan of seeing people play like the the shows in order. I kind of prefer something more, more like the I guess what Massive Attack did. I saw Elvis Costello do a show uh, mm. maybe two or three years ago uh, where it was like. Uh, it's going to be like kind of an imperial bedroom thing, but we're not going to play all of the songs. We're not going to play it in order. We'll play like most of the songs. Hmm. And like, I think he probably played like 13 out of 15 songs from imperial bedroom. It's like, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Sign me up. I'm right. I'm right there. It was almost like I needed that because like I very specifically wanted to see uh, beyond belief. So it's like, okay, yeah. Uh, okay. I'm guaranteed yeah, yeah. beyond belief. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sign me up. Tears before bedtime. Love that song. Let's do it. Yeah, that's interesting. It would also be interesting for like a show that's like an acknowledged kind of like greatest hit show, kind of like the Cure anniversary show. Have you have you ever watched or listened to that? No, no, no. What, what do they do with those? It's great. It's the 30th anniversary of their first gig and they played it in Hyde Park in London and then they released it as a DVD and on you know, CD and streaming and everything. Uh, it, it's a great fun show, but at the beginning and through the middle, you, you, you're like, Oh my God, awesome. They're playing the hits and kind of like into the last third, you could feel them start to just like, like as they're doing the set list, you could feel their attitude shift towards fuck it. We've been doing this for 30 years at this point, we're going to play whatever the fuck we want. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, yeah. here's what you think our greatest hits are. Here's what we think our greatest hits are. Um, but it'd be cool to have a show like that in chronological order, like a 30 year career. Here are uh, the select songs. It's almost like as long as two sets, but here's us doing it in chronological order. Yeah. I think the thing that I don't really like about seeing those shows where they're playing the album in order is that it kind of disrupts like one of the nice energies of seeing live music or that, that you don't really know what the song is next. Yeah. Like maybe you're a nerd, maybe you, you, you're keeping up with uh, setlist.fm, but for the most part, that's you're going on to you. a show. That's on you. Yeah. That that's on you. That's on that, you. That's also, um, it's like some artists, you know, don't, don't rotate much. Some do and don't. But I think part of the fun is like, Oh my God, they're playing this now. It's like, not having that energy. Like, when you know exactly what, what's going to happen, it's like, well, okay, I guess the two, two songs I can hit the bathroom. Never really liked that stretch of two or three. You right. Know? Yeah. 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 It's like, I, I don't know. I, I, and then also because albums tend to be sequenced in a way that is not like a concert. So it doesn't have the same kind of, uh, arc that you want from a concert as opposed to yeah. an album. And, and albums are also very frequently front loaded. So like the, all mm-hmm. the popular songs that you would p- typically put at the end of a show to get people like max level hype, you know, are all kind of done with like, I, so a good example of this is I saw, um, you two uh, play that Joshua Tree tour. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and they're a band that have like a lot of big crowd pleasing hits so they can get oh, away yeah. with playing like their three biggest hits, like relatively early in the show. So mm-hmm. the way they did those shows is they, they, they come out, they play uh, three or four mega hits from before the Joshua Tree, like opening with Sunday Bloody Sunday, just going straight into it in a way that they don't usually do. And then they play all of Joshua Tree. But Joshua Tree is a, a very front-loaded record. Even if it's a yes. good record from top to bottom, it, like the the four mega the four, songs yes. are the right in a row. Right up front. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they have, but 
they also could just come back and just play a bunch more hits once that record was done. But yeah. a lot of times, like the, you, you, you really have that drop off, and maybe you don't have other mega hits to kind of drop at the end. You know, yeah. Sometimes, like m- most of the time, when people are doing those album tours, that is like most of the songs people kind of want to hear to begin right. with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, some albums just end on a very like contemplative note. And that's great for an album, but you don't necessarily want to end a concert in that way. Like you want to end it at least on like a grand note, if not a big high energy note to send people home. Um, oh, a good example of, of what I was just saying was I saw yeah. uh, the Breeders do the Last Splash oh. and Pod. And they did Last Splash first. So the second song of the concert was Cannonball. Right. Yeah. It's just like. It's like you, it's, it's just, you, need, you need that song to be a treat later on. It just feels too weird to be like kick like within seven minutes of the show. You've already seen Cannonball. Yeah, it's kind of like R.E.M. If they played It's the End of the World as We Know It adds to the second song. I've like, seen them play it the first song, but it was the only time they ever did it. It was really? right after uh, it was right after George W. Bush won his second term. And oh, it was the shit. night. It was the day after, and like they just uh, they brought that song out to open so that was the show. A catharsis. That was like let's all yeah. mourn this together, but have have a, have the best night that we can. Um, when I saw them uh, for the Monster Tour, they played it as the last song of the encore, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, for for a very long time, that's kind of what that song was, and then yeah. eventually, Man mm-hmm. in the Moon uh, replaced it. And they yeah. would just kind of they, they, uh, end of the world would usually kind of be like either at the end of the main set or near encore towards the end. They gave that song a little bit of a rest too, like that the, the tour where they where I saw them open a show with it. That that song was generally not played on that tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That given the occasion, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it was it was a stunt. Um, speaking of surprises at shows, I, I had this in mind to tell you about First Avenue. Um, went to go see the Mike Watt tour there. And this was when he was touring for Ball Hog or Tugboat, which I know you know this album because you put a song from there on a recent playlist. And I was. Oh, yeah. Surprised. Well, against the 70s with Eddie Vedder and Dave Grohl. That's such oh, a great song. It's an incredible song. It's It's such a great song. And that album is still so unique to this day because he had like what like 20 to 30 guest stars and they're all luminaries of the indie rock world throughout the entire album and famously the only woman or one of two women on there was Kathleen Hanna leaving a voicemail to him about how she didn't want to participate in his like dude rock album which is (laughs) funny on a number of levels But 
you know, and 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 I like the album, but often with First Avenue, the tickets were so cheap that you're just like, oh, I'll just I'll just go to the show because all my friends are going, and it'll be a fun night because I'm going to spend like eight dollars on this ticket. Um, and the both the opening acts, we didn't know who they were, but that was like very common for a First Ave show. And we went there, and the first act, it was literally the Foo Fighters, but still with Chris Novoselic. Wait, I didn't even know Novoselic was involved at any point. He, at least on that tour, this was before their album came out. We didn't even know the name Foo Fighters. And it, it made sense because then, of course, they, they had all played. Pat Smear was there, too, as I remember. And they all played on the Mike Watt album. They're one of the many guests. So we're like, holy shit. Oh, my God. And it was like, you know, Kurt Cobain had died. And that, you know, was still like very fresh. Um, and to see them all together, it, it, was, it was literally like it was literally Nirvana without Kurt Cobain. Um, wow. It, it's kind of interesting to think about if uh, Chris Novoselic just kind of stuck with it and it would have really forced a comparison to New Order. Yeah, that's it's, very true. Because Foo Fighters ends up being like Dave Kroll and his and his crew. But if you have Dave you know, Kroll and his amazing and, and, and Pat Smear is in, he's in that, but it's like it's, because he was basically a hired hand, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have necessarily the same resonance. But right, yeah, if you have exactly. But if you have him and Chris Novoselic, but that just becomes the Nirvana New Order. And then, and I wonder for for Novoselic or Grohl or anybody if that was like part of the calculations, like. I love you guys. I love playing with you guys, but I just can't be in like the new order of Nirvana. Like I can't do that. Yeah. Um, but the the second opening act, which we had also never heard of, was wait. Now I'm confused. It, it was either hoverboard or hovercraft. Does that does that ring a oh, bell? Oh, hovercraft, you? right? That's Eddie Vedder and his ex wife. Exactly, exactly. Hovercraft. So the second band was Eddie Vedder coming out on stage and singing, and a, you know, a and this is like 1995. Well. This is like this yeah. is like Eddie Vedder at this at this. I don't. I think people can, these days don't quite understand how big Pearl Jam was through the first half of the 90s. Like, oh yeah, there's a level massive. of fame that was just almost like mind boggling. Like he was mm-hmm. like he had a similar place in culture that Taylor Swift has now. Yeah, like I think that so. level of like yeah. fame and also people just being like yes. really just like almost like alarmingly obsessed with him. Yeah, it's it's tough to judge because he's so much more reticent than Taylor. But beyond that, and of course, like whatever social media didn't exist then, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, he he had that level of fame. Um, and and you're right, people obsessed with him and, and dissecting his uh, lyrics and all that kind of shit. And to see him even in 1995 in a club like First Avenue was improbable. Like Pearl Jam, if they had ever played First Avenue, which, uh, which they probably did before 10 hit, but like they certainly were not not playing First Avenue at that point. Yeah. Um, I actually just checked to see what the uh, the capacity is. So it's 1,500, yeah. which is wow. pretty good. So like in New York City terms, like that's like yeah. twice the size of Bowery Ballroom. So it's like, it's a, it's, oh, a, it's, yeah. a, okay. it's like a decently sized club. It's like, um, yeah, yeah. I think maybe it would be similar to Webster Hall here. All so right. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what the LA version of that would be necessarily. No, maybe but, like the Echo or the Echoplex. I've only ever actually been to like arena and stadium shows in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, uh, that's a bummer. I'm sorry. Oh God, I, I I have I had like this really really weird experience. Uh, I think it was the last time I was in LA, um, where I saw Steely Dan uh, play at the Forum in Inglewood, 
And oh, wild! <laughs> and like I am, I am not a stoner. I don't really have a lot of s- stories yeah. with drugs, but this is one yeah. where I where the, where I do have a story where um, I was there for work for like a week or so, but I mm-hmm. knew that like most of my friends weren't going to be available. So I was like, okay, right. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll maybe what, you know what? I can just legally get some uh, edibles and, yes. you know, uh, I'll when, see a movie. When in Los Angeles, do as Los Angeles. Right. Cause I remember like I saw, so yeah, I did that and I got some edibles and like I saw solo by myself at the, the theater. That's kind of by the amoeba, the kind of the dome thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was not in the dome though, unfortunately. But it was okay. that place. Um yeah. but yeah, I I, <laughs> I took like one thing. I was like, okay, yeah, that didn't really have much of an effect on me. But then I also had like a, a gummy thing, like a like a maybe like the size of like a, your tongue. Mm-hmm. Um and me being a person who doesn't really engage with this very much, I didn't realize like how many grams of THC it was going to be. So right. I had a full 100 uh, grams. Yo. And I was by the time. <laughs> so like the, the, the band opening for Steely Dan was oh, uh, the Doobie Brothers, but Doobie Brothers without Michael oh. McDonald. So it's like right. pretty awful. And like, right. like, you know, they're not going to play what it's a like fool believes. Sublime with Rome. Yeah, well, it's it is it's like the Doobie Brothers, and Michael Michael McDonald kind of comes into that band later. Oh, okay. so okay. yeah, but yeah, so I was perfectly sober for this horrible Doobie Brothers set, oh, uh, but really, a, just before Steely Dan went on, like the thing just hit, and I was like in the oh. I was in the cosmos, and it was also enough oh. that I felt sick to my stomach. Uh, and like I, I literally had to run out and puke midway through the show. And like I'm uh, also in a, bro. I'm in a oh, city no. where I, I don't, uh, where I don't live. I'm at a yeah. hotel like a, a way on the other side of town. Yeah, I'm staying in Hollywood. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm at this arena alone. I'm in the middle of an aisle, and it's not easy to walk in and out of those aisles when everyone's kind of. Oh, there God, to see a no. show. It was like people haven't I was been just, to the forum before. The forum is where the Lakers played all through the eighties and nineties. That's what the venue is for. So imagine yeah. being it's a it's, it's a cool looking venue. It, it has because it's kind of like yeah. freestanding and it it looks like a, a forum. You know, it's yeah. it has mm-hmm. like and one of the things I've always liked about LA is that like there is like this like a uh, real commitment to decor. Uh, especially a kitschy <laughs> decor. Um, yep. mm-hmm. and so I don't know, maybe that's not the best example, but like I can think of lots of like bars and like restaurants and things like that, where it's like everything has to have like a theme. Right. Maybe that harkens back to like, what do they call it? The architecture where you make a building look like something like the Brown Derby looks like a hat. Is it called programmatic? Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure an architecture nerd will tweet at the right answer at us, but, but maybe it goes back to that. Cause LA has like a very long history of programmatic asterisk, uh, architecture. Oh yeah. And you just kind of see like things that are built to look like a, you know, like a hot dog or whatever, like whatever it's going to yeah. be. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's always kind of like this novelty factor in decor and architecture that, you know, being a person who's lived pretty much, well, I, I'm pretty much, I've lived my entire life in New York, except for like a little, are you a native New Yorker? Yeah. I'm from the Hudson Valley. Uh, okay, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
but yeah, I've, I've lived in like Southern New York my entire life. Yes. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, that's like my frame of reference is, is, is New York, but it's also like the East coast and that's not quite as common, you know? And like, I think like the aesthetics are just different. So whenever I go to LA or just, I guess California generally, but especially LA, um, yeah. there is like, there's like this, uh, kitschy, cute energy that I just really enjoy. Cause it's so yeah. different from what I'm used to. Like, I've always, I think one of the reasons I like LA probably the most of any other place I've been in New York, aside from New York city in the United States is because it's like, it has everything that I like about New York in terms of like the things that New York can supply, but yeah. it's otherwise just the complete opposite. So like, <laughs> it doesn't really force comparisons easily. Whereas like yeah. I can go to Chicago and literally there's no disrespect to Chicago. Chicago is a great city, but Chicago, it's very hard for me to engage with that without being like, yeah, this is kind of like New York. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it always feels like a lesser version in a way that's unfair to Chicago, but it, it's just like, because they're more similar, there is like a real point of comparison yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did you get yourself safely out of the forum did you escape <sighs> yeah i mean i i, I well I, I threw up during the song dirty work i remember hearing that that's that kind of burned <laughs> in my memory now um, this is so very cinematic and then I got back to the thing, uh, back to my seat and kind of I, I got through the rest of the show and then eventually got like a cab and God knows how much I paid for that. Oh, my God. It was like I, it was like, it was, yeah, and it was Fuck a cab man. cab. I couldn't get an Uber or whatever. Like that was almost yeah. impossible. So I had to just get like one of the cabs that was there. But, you know, whatever price it was, it, it did not break me and I needed it. <laughs> Because yeah, I had you, to get back to that hotel. About doing it now, yes, exactly. It it saved your ass. Yeah, and I then I had to go to work the next day, and I was still like in like outer yeah. space when I was at work. It was so loopy. It's, it's yeah. It was like oh god. It's really one of the weirder experiences I've had, which probably sounds tame to a lot of people, but yeah, it was it was just a know. terrible decision on my part. Hundred grams of THC is pretty hardcore. Hardcore, Chuck. In the world words of Wolverine. Um, but yeah, the, the the forum is impossible to get out of, especially at the end of a concert. So it was good that you left early and just got a cab when you could. Oh no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't leave early. <laughs> that was a, oh, no, I probably should have. I probably should have. No, no, I stay. I stayed straight through, man. It's got, I, I'm a big Steely Dan fan. I've got to see what a true fan. Steely Dan soldier. What a true Dan head or whatever yeah. they call you people. Um, yeah, that's that's also the only time I've ever seen Steely Dan at a place other than the Beacon Theater. Oh, which is okay. it, which is kind of like a this kind of fancy theater on the Upper West Side, where they kind of famously do like these long like like week or two of shows, and that they've been doing oh, it for shit. years and years now, at least since yeah. the early to mid aughts. Um, there's a, wow. if you've ever seen uh, Oh Hello, they have they have a really good riff about that very thing in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I think he's like like it's very something to the effect of like comedy. Like, because they're t- giving you a history lesson. And it's like September 11th through 17th, 2008 at the Beacon Theater. Steely Dan, eight shows in a row. <laughs> oh, my God. But, yeah, I mean, I've, and I've gone to a lot of those. Like, the last – I mean, they, they had it again last year, and I went to four. Four out of wow, seven, I think. that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So I've, but yeah, you know, so we were talking before about this, like seeing people play their albums. Like that's one where I have seen them play like a lot of their albums at this point. Yeah. Or at least all the ones that they will play straight through. 
Yeah. Um, one of my more, more I, I saw Rihanna at the forum. That was a fucking fantastic show. So what's what tour was uh, that for? For anti. Okay. I I I will I will never pass up a chance to see Rihanna at all moving forward. Um, it might it might be a while also, though. It might, it's going to be a bit. It's going to be a long time. I'm basically not going to pass up a chance to see any concert moving forward. That's just whenever whenever there's a concert and uh, it's not going to give me crippling paranoia to go into a room full of hot, sweaty people, then I'm just going to go to every show. That's just what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think uh, like once like quarantine ends and on the other side of this, whether it's like next year or the year after, whatever it's going to be, like people are just going to go so hard on everything that they couldn't do. So like, yeah, so that's like some hope for like the all the all the things that have been suffering through this year is like you're going to at least get a, like a hot windfall, like <laughs> at least in that first six month mm-hmm. span where people are just going like really overdoing it. Like bars, bars yeah. are out of control. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a shit show. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Uh, um, but uh, it, it it is also like just a reminder that we need some sort of like, it, you know, I'm sure you see the same thing on social media. I saw on Instagram the other day, a beloved club in New Orleans just shut down after like 40 years of being open or something like that. And like we... <sighs> need some sort of solution to keep these beloved venues in a way that doesn't involve trying to force people to go out before it's unsafe because we're going to, we're going to need these clubs afterwards to go get buck wild. But (laughs) even if you know, you're not a a club goer, even if you don't like live shows or whatever, I don't know who you would be at that point, but for the people out there who are like, it's fine if these places shut down, like, Places like First Avenue are homes to scenes and up and coming acts. So even if you don't go to these venues, these venues, they form like a, a very important role in the whole ecosystem that results in the music that you love. Right. You know, there, there would be no Prince without the support of places like First Avenue. There would be no uh, replacements. And you could say that for hundreds of acts and clubs around the country and around the world. Yeah. Are there any like major ones that have gone under in LA? I'm trying to think and I feel like they're they've all been hanging on like they've all they're all just like hibernating as best they can. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about oh, in New no, York uh, there um, hasn't really been any Sorry, the satellite. The satellite closed. Do you the satellite used to be Spaceland? Oh god, so that's so that's been around for ages. In Silver Lake? Oh, that's been around for ages. They changed the name to Satellite for reasons I don't really remember. Uh, and I don't remember feeling like, re- respecting at the time. Uh, but yeah, that that place shut down. Uh, man, a lot of good memories there. Um, that's right in the middle of Silver Lake. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, my main association with Spaceland, it was because it, it was like kind of like the big deal hot club in the 90s in California and mm-hmm. L.A. Yeah, you see like a lot of like bootlegs and stuff from Spaceland or Setlist and stuff like that. Uh, very great, uh, similar format to First Avenue, except they had a a pool table, hmm. maybe two pool tables. Um, yeah, all all the New York venues yeah. seem to be kind of hanging on. Like if if there's, I don't think there's been any like closures yet. I, I wouldn't. No major. I, I feel like yeah. something will probably give before too long. Um, 
but yeah, they're mostly like restaurants have going going under. Yeah, that's that's been the heartbreaker over here too. Um, the restaurants, and you know, I was talking to my mom, and she's like, "Oh well, like you know, but you have so many restaurants, but yeah, but like there's you know, all you need is one to break your heart, really, just the right one to close or the wrong one. Uh, that that's all you need to to be crushed for the day. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of grateful that like most of the things that we like relevant to me in my general vicinity have been kind of doing okay as far as I can tell. Uh, but I live in a very like residential part of Brooklyn and uh, Park Slope. So mm, it's, yeah. it's, it's already like a very community place and like people being discouraged from going to Manhattan just makes these things stronger, I think in a lot of ways. So, uh, cause people are staying local, like they're hunkering down. Right. It's like a neighborhood. Sense. Right. So if you're going to go out to eat, you're not, you know, you're already, you know, it's, it's a lot of like risk management involved these days. So, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I like ha- thinking about what it takes to get to Manhattan if you don't have your own car. Yeah. Or just like, oh, like taking the subway. Like, do I want to take the subway? We can just go, you know, I'm sure there's like a, a whole conversation that happens all the time. Like, I haven't yeah. I haven't gone to any restaurants or bars in the, the whole time of this. Oh, um, no. And yeah, it's, it's like one of those things where like, yeah, I, I, I didn't really, go, I mean, I went to bars a fair amount, but I didn't go to restaurants too often. So it's like, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice mm-hmm. to me. Like, I mean, I've had like food prepared yeah. outside the house. I've, you know, I've picked, taken takeout yeah. and stuff, but you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, I still largely cook for myself regardless. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, I don't, uh, but yeah, I think like I've, I'm pretty happy that like a lot of the things that mattered the most to me have kind of hung on. Like I know um, my my comic store is uh, Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet was in shaky ground. Oh yeah, and it seems like they're kind of, they? it seems like they're kind of uh, doing okay again now that they can do a regular store. Good. Yeah, I think like losing you're the in Union Square. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's you know wow. and Forbidden Planet's been around a really long time. They've had a few different oh, locations. Yeah. But um, like the location they're in now was kind of like like three doors down from where they were for a long time. Like certainly the long the longest time I was aware of. Right. Yeah, I used to go to the one in Union Square. That one in like the early '90s when I would visit New York. Yeah, that one is now a Zoomies. (laughs) (laughs) But they moved a couple doors down. Yeah, they're they're in a better space for sure. But yeah, yeah, they're they're just like they they got they managed to go down the block. Yeah, uh, the, the near the near the strand that one. Yeah, so like they're yeah they're 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 kind of right by beside each other, and uh yep. and also uh, my former therapist. It's all it was all kind of like right well, there, there in go. a compact zone. Triple header. Yeah. Every, every time I go to New York, I go to the strand and then walk down to Forbidden Planet and then I walk down to your former therapist. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> she's like, how mad? How's Matthew doing? Like, you did a good job. He seems to be doing pretty good. He's doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah i mean the, the things that's, that break my heart is really like all the record stores that have go- gone away but that's all well before yeah. all this um I, i'm still very bitter yeah about that other music. trend started 20 years ago at this point um other music yeah that that was one that i used to go to in the early 90s as well and it felt like 
walking into the coolest place on earth. One of the things I didn't realize until I think around the time, like my friends made a, a documentary about other music uh, that I think is on Amazon right now, if anyone wants to check it out. Mm. But I didn't realize that the store opened around 95. So I think the first time I went there was around oh, 96. Shit, really? So like, I was, oh, so I was like a regular shopper at this place almost the entire time it existed. Huh? Wow. Wow. God, I must have started going there in like 95 or 96 as well. Yeah. I think other, My memory other, says I was going there in the early 90s, but obviously that can't be true. So it must have been like right off the bat. I feel like other music really is like one of the more uh, influential record stores. Uh, it's certainly a history of New York City, but probably like in a larger picture. Because I think they were always like ahead yeah. on a lot of things. Um, and it would, mm-hmm. uh, God, there's, I can think of all these things that I got in uh, on the ground floor when they were just kind of selling, like, here's like a, a CDR or like an early like EP of something that became something <laughs> yeah. a year or two later. So, you know, so, so like things like that would be like, well, I got in on Animal Collective way early that way. I got in on, uh, yeah, 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 this is all like around 2000. 2000 maybe yeah. one. i remember like they they were like probably one of the first places to have that first strokes ep like all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff was all bubbling up there at that time and that's even just like the more mainstream end of things they were they were just yeah. such a good store it was like such an incredibly curated store it was so tiny but also you know i i, I still really love the way they uh organize things into uh now and then yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just really thoughtful. That's and a good shit. Yeah. I always, like, before I lived in Los Angeles, uh, I, I would always, like, when I visited New York, I'd always go there armed with a list of, like, albums that I couldn't find, I'd only heard of or read about, like, albums that were practically legendary to me, and to be able to find, like, three at once. At a what are some like that you remember? Uh, uh, massive, uh, a mad professor versus massive attack. Oh, no sick. protection. Yeah. You remember that one? Yeah. The entire remix album. Um, this is of course now the, uh, massive attack, uh, pot episode of the podcast. Now, um, uh, a lot of, uh, jungle sky compilations, like the jungle and drum and bass record label, um, from back in the nineties. Yeah. I, I don't that? think, I mean, I know the, the jungle stuff, but I don't think I've ever heard one of those, uh, one of those CDs. They have some great, I don't know if this is my nostalgia talking, but they they have some stuff that like really, really holds up. Uh, in particular, I, I keep going back to Jungle Sky number two, that, that compilation, and Jungle Sky number five or six, I believe. I'm going to look this up so I don't... Has this stuff made it to streaming? I don't know. I th- This is stuff that I've just like ripped over and over again, and I've had in my... Um, yeah, that, that just know, feels like exactly the kind of thing that like, gets lost for time. Right, yeah. Jungle Sky number six, Funk. That's the one. Uh, it's, a, it's a double album, and like Africa Mabat is in it, in addition to a bunch of like drum and bass and jungle DJs who are lost to time forever. Um, but yes, that, 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 that does seem to fall in the category of like a. Um, a, a small specialized record label 
who that may have closed doors and changed hands a dozen times before a Spotify deal was possible. Um, and also maybe just like legally, what is the deal legally with compilations? I feel like you would be very familiar. So, well, there's a lot of licensing involved. So yeah, there's just a lot of negotiations. You have to yeah. like renegotiate for every artist on the compilation before you put it on Spotify. Yeah, I or does like the original yeah. agreement I mean, that's, cover that's that why shit? like a lot of soundtracks aren't available, things like that. Like or or, oh, yeah. or you'll find one that'll be on Spotify or Apple Music, and only like two songs will be available. Yikes! Yeah, so, yeah. Keep you, those keep those MP3s. Yeah, keep those CDs. Keep those those records. Um, yeah. God. Yeah, I think with, with Jungle, I only like kind of dip my toes into that, and in kind of the way I think a lot of other people did at the time with that uh, that Ronnie Size represent uh, double CD new forms. Oh yeah, form, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Some brown paper sounds that we bring are of a different nature. Rhythms get greater, then rhythms they get greater. Yes, another rougher tough form for the chaser. New configuration, new riff, and new structure. Built on a frame that'll hold and won't puncture. Tight, we wrap it up, it's wrapped tightly. It lifts the bass is the hobby that it gives. When we apply the brakes, there'll be no skits. Just more elements to continue as we climb. Dimensions and the measurements and the evidence you won't find. Changing, rearranging, so it's regularly updated. Hits from every angle, so expect the unexpected. Represent the fusion of the minds that stay connected. The style that is presented, the size of the heart that's been invented. Deliver with the flow we give you, so that means you meant it. In your direction is the bearing that we aim to sense it. Instead of waiting for a new stop and a we invent it. And let you get your money's worth. Yep. Uh, that, that was a big one. I was like in, so from like 96 to 98, I was just a, a raver in Savannah, Georgia, going to art school. Uh, oh, did you, did you go to that, that school there? That was kind of like the the uh, the the kind of the art school. Yes, and they kind of the have a comics school? angle to them. Scad, yeah, they did. That's why. That's exactly why I went there. I went to Scad because at the time they were the only accredited college in America that had a comics program. It's called the Sequential Art Program. Barry Scott McCloud of them uh, instantly. Instantly did not like it because it was very much focused on um, uh, churning out like the next Batman artist, which which now I have plenty of respect for. But I was in this like weird period of time where uh, I was 20 years old and I thought I knew everything. And I jettisoned my respect for Batman artists in favor of um, people like Seth and Joe Matt and... Uh, uh, love and rockets, which of course I still love, but you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. I was like, oh, the, nerve. the auto bio is 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 the true art. That's the true message of comics, and the uh, indie comics are the only way to go. <laughs> Everything else is corrupt. I, you know, I, I was also you, an you art take school. The proper guy. nouns out of that. Yeah, I, yeah, so yeah. I, I, I totally relate the proper nouns, and everybody goes through that phase. Yeah, well, the, and the, I think the particular arrogance of like a nineteen-year-old male art student mm-hmm. is just—it's just like a mm-hmm. thing that you can only get through. And then once you're on their side, you're like, "Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> oh God." Exactly. And now I work with Batman artists, you know, like now some of them are my dear friends and, and stuff like that. Have you written time, Batman before? It was long term. Oh, you must have because you've written Harley I've, I've never written Nightwing. Batman title. Yeah. 
I, I've, I've written the character, you know, in, in all sorts of like nooks and crannies. He was in two issues of Harley and he's kind of in the background at Nightwing and that kind of stuff. I've never written the main title, but, you know, like uh, Batman artists or artists of the same level are, are people that, you know, are my colleagues yeah. and friends at this. Point. I'm just getting at have you made Batman say things? And the answer is yes. I've made Batman say things. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's more than I can you know, say. Never, never as out there as I would like it to be. But, you know, he's kind of valuable. They got to protect him. Yeah. Well, you know, give it time. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was I was a, a raver. And I in Savannah, there was just like, you know, a DJ for every three art school students. And I remember the, the jungle versus drum and bass wars. Uh, when that seemed so important. I didn't realize that was a thing that would have happened in Georgia. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it was just, it was the discourse, man. It was like, what, you know, jungle is like this and drum and bass is like this. And I was never a DJ or a musician even. So I don't really have the vocabulary for it. And I can kind of still listen to something and be like this is more jungle than drum and bass or whatever can you, can but, you do a beatbox you know, you get of these it? djs <laughs> oh my god you're oh, real busy don't even, don't. <laughs> damn dude that was fresh you got some skills i can't do that um but you know you, you just be it's 3 a.m at a party these two djs are getting like real heated at each other arguing over like what's the true music you know like all that kind of shit uh, of course, none of that really means anything now. And drum and bass is just kind of like all the surviving drum and bass and jungle heads and go aheads. And you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of like all the all the people who who, who keep the lamplight burning. Um, devotee of um giant robot the magazine oh right? yeah they're kind, kind of a anime kind of thing right and toys and things like that uh they, they 
They they covered Asian culture. They're the magazine of Asian culture. Uh, so they would cover anime and toys and that kind of stuff. But they would also have like interviews with Chow Yun Fat before he was like an American star. Um, and they would cover like um, Pizzicato Five and Cornelius. And I was really into like all those acts, like the Shubia K scene before it minorly blew up over here. So this would be like around like um, what 95, you know, 96, 97, so more in that zone. It, yeah, exactly. So I would I would read about them uh, in Giant Robot. And some of those artists, like Cornelius, had an album out through Matador, whoever, and Pizzicato 5 had a couple albums. But a lot of that stuff I would have to find as imports, which, of course, you're not really going to find oh, yeah. in Savannah, Georgia, no matter how I feel like imports are a really difficult concept to pull now if you, if, you, if you did not grow up with record stores. Like, yeah, so yeah. there was a time where, you know, yeah. uh, there would be these records that wouldn't come out of America, but they would be sent over here and we would pay like a lot of money for them. And sometimes they would only have like three songs on them, but we would still pay like $20. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or like Japanese import singles, like you'd pay as much or more than a normal album and you do it for that one B-side, just that one yeah. B-side. I mean, I did that for like a, like a good number of acts in the 90s. I mean. Oh, yeah. I remember buying an import from Beck uh, because it had one of the B-sides was the song MTV Makes Me Want to Smoke Crack. And that just. The title alone spoke to me on so many levels. I didn't care if the song was good or bad. It was kind of whatever. But I, you know what I mean? I just needed to know what that song was like. I just needed to God, have it. What, what a, how brilliant to just be like, yeah, to, to use that title. Because like Beck must have known on some level that he would create what is now called a curiosity gap. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and also kind of like, perfecting that like uh that rebel pose that also ingratiates you with the thing you're rebelling against that also is yes. really good for your Beck, career. whose career was absolutely launched by mtv <laughs> uh beck i saw beck's first tour at first avenue that was another show i saw oh first wow avenue. what was it like seeing beck at that phase of his uh, career because it, it's a little bit before he was kind of going full funky <clears> when he kind of does the shift into odelay yes yeah, exactly. And this was also when being a I was I was a Beck stan from the get go. There was something just like the timing for me was right because I was finally kind of getting interested in other genres and also just like genre blending uh, as a, as opposed to before that I was purely like current indie rock and classic rock. So uh things like beats but also with acoustic guitar was like wow i feel so like worldly listening to this uh but also like the the sarcasm of it all but when beck first came out because of what loser was because it was such a commentary on um grunge some people thought he was a novelty act some people thought he was a joke act and and he also had these like boyish looks and he was on the cover of spin magazine like some people kind of thought that he was like a manufactured weird owl or or a manufactured attempt at having a, a grunge hunk or something like that so there's a lot of derision around back and i remember kind of like like standing fast but also feeling the burn of being a a, a beck fan uh 
And the only other thing that he really had out at the time was stereopathic soul maneuver. Oh yeah, like this album? I think he also maybe just maybe just around the same time was also like one foot in the grave. This is before One Foot in the Grave because I I, I bought and loved One Foot in the Grave. Um, but he he played some songs from One Foot in the Grave, but he also just had all this shit from Stereopathic Soul Manure, which is a much more avant-garde album for Beck. It doesn't fit into the loser or Odelay mode, but it also doesn't fit into um, the One Foot in the Grave or uh, what's the contemplative one that came after Odelay? Oh, Mutations. Mutations and yes, that Midnight Vultures and mold either. Mutations, mutations. You got to ping pong yep. through yeah, exactly. uh, extremes um, for a while. Yeah, yeah. So, but but seropathic soul manure was like way off the charts. It was like tape feedback and uh, just heavy distortion and crazy shit like that. And there's a song on that album that he performed that's basically him performing harmonica into a micro and a heavily heavily distorted microphone and kind of like singing these like very harshly singing these lyrics through his distortion and keeping the beat just by stomping the stage and that's when i was like oh shit like he he's like out here to prove that he's not this like one-dimensional like cover voice you know it's funny because we were talking about radiohead before radiohead really have the same thing where they 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 had to overcome this like big hit early on to prove that they are what they are I don't think that happens mm-hmm. as much now where mm-hmm. like people or, or, be, or I don't know, like like who from the recent past has, has really kind of like started off with a hit and then kind of became more of an artsy act. I'm sure there's something, but it's not coming to mind. Yeah, I I don't know. But is it is it also part of it like the transformation of like singles? No, maybe, maybe Frank Ocean or like. Maybe because like thinking about you was kind of a hit, but I think even at that point, people kind of saw him as a, an a, an arty figure. He was always kind of a prestige yeah, artist. Yeah, because that album was like, yes, yeah. Um, and he also had like advanced buzz of prestige artists as well, almost in, um, you know. Because back then, like, Odd Future was like, oh, they're a bunch yeah. of smart asses. Oh, they don't give a fuck, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, oh, here's the Odd Future who yeah. gives a fuck. <laughs> like, that kind of media I feel narrative. like maybe it's not quite um, a, a narrative that can happen now because, like, isn't, I feel like MTV is really the crucial factor. And the, the incredible power MTV had in, like, their peak years, which I would kind of say is between, yeah. like, 88 yep. to 2001 or 2002 like that's a that is the period of time where mtv is like is the center of culture in this way that is like impossible yeah. to imagine now there's nothing that has occupied that realm um of just yeah i, I mean you can kind of look at like technologies that have usurped that thing but it's not like one particular company with like a, a handful of people making these calls yeah, and I just I can't I can't think of anyone who reluctantly has had a hit. Right. I feel I feel I feel like only only Gen X people, only Gen X people can have reluctant hits. This is, <laughs> is this the Gen X? Yeah, disease? I think that, that I think that's like Gen X brainworms. <laughs> the the authenticity disease. It's like um, oh no, I've had a hit. Damn it. Oh, I have to now. I have to overcome this. <laughs> I mean, I, maybe there's some boomer acts that have had that arc, where like you know, uh, but I feel like that's really 
really specific the gen x is very but not even like like, especially like the very early to mid 90s that is the zone where that is like a thing we mentioned pearl jam before pearl jam was like as big as a rock band could possibly be and actively decided to not be famous anymore and like i think they're they're, i think they're the only like major band to ever make a decision like that Yeah, I you know they, they you're right about how big they were, but it felt like they were always kind of big on their own terms. Like they never felt big in a way that they seemed to disagree with, right? Like they never felt big in a way that they felt yeah. burdened by, or they to the extent they acknowledged how big they were, they felt like it was because of the things that they are and they wanted yeah. to do. But, but also just, just to the point about MTV, like the first thing uh, Pearl Jam does and the most decisive uh, for the long term to, to kind of back away from like mega fame is stop making videos. If they, if they made videos yeah. for mm-hmm. uh, verses and vitality, it, it would have been a really different story. They look God, like a song like better man. Like that would have been, they, they would have like played that yeah. into the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, and you know, I the the Ticketmaster brouhaha probably is like a symptom of the same like core desire to be like, let's not let this get out of control. Let's turn the gas burner down a bit before we can't. Yeah, I think that. also like that, and also like wanting to advocate for their fans and just like like okay, deciding like wh- what's the important yeah. thing we want like because yeah because i think that that's that's crucial because they're at a mm-hmm. stage where they're kind of turning people away somewhat but they're also needed to do something that was like listen you people who, who you like us we will be good to you we will go bend over backwards for you till the end of time which is proven to be the case with with pearl jam and their fans so yeah, so That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of had to that was kind of the crucial thing. So we're going to we're going to step away from this bigger thing, but we don't want to lose the people who care. Yeah. So yeah, they, they yeah, pivoted absolutely. to being like the grateful dead. Okay. They really did, didn't they? Or, or at least like that Grateful Dead model, like, where it's really like like a, a, a we're, we're just a humongously popular cult act, and there's a lot of those now. But the, the, I think uh, sure that model was still being established in the '90s. I think like bands like Pearl Jam and Fish and a few others, Dave Matthews Band, I think too, like really kind of uh, took the Grateful Dead model and kind of modernized it in their own ways and. I think there's, I think Radiohead kind of exists in that yeah. way now too. You know, is this any band that's like really popular, but uh, doesn't necessarily need to have hits anymore. And, you know, but, but kind of has like a real engagement that's beyond just being a nostalgia act. Yeah. I mean, I think Radiohead has like a kind of a separate psychological problem with fame and all that. I mean, they made a whole documentary. <laughs> oh about God. It, I was thinking um, about that one the other day. That is like <laughs> that move. The meeting people is easy. That Dude. is, uh, if you want to easy. not, li- if you want what to not like Tom York, you got to watch that movie. Uh, yeah, I actually, speaking of things that aren't on streaming, there's a lot of concert films or something that are very, uh, rarely available on streaming. So I've been buying, 
concert films or music documentaries on DVD uh, cheap online. And that's one that I've gotten. And I got it because I was like, ooh, I haven't seen this in forever. Can't wait to watch it. Now that I have it, I'm like, I need to be in the right mood for this. I can't just dive into it's this. It's so heavy. It's, it is- <laughs> I can't decide if I need to watch it on a good day or a bad day. I can't decide which day I want to ruin or bad. Oh, yeah. That, that, that really is a setter setting thing there. <laughs> Wait, so what else what else have yeah. you gotten besides yeah. uh, meeting people is easy? Uh I got this documentary called The Show. Are you familiar with this? Oh, it sounds familiar. Just uh the wh- who's in it? It it's uh it's it's basically like Def Jam artists and some Death Row artists and uh Wu-Tang. So there's like early Biggie and super early Puffy. Uh, and um, Dr. Dre is in it, and Snoop Dogg's in it. Uh, they go visit Slick Rick in jail, and it's very early, uh, young Wu Tang Clan, like kind of going nuts in Japan. Would this be like I guess it's around ninety four? Right, footage. it would have to be around that time, somewhere around there. And it's like it's produced by Russell Simmons, so it like has an agenda that you know the to like showcase his artists and showcase hip hop as a whole. So it's not quite like the most incisive documentary, um, but it it has incredible archival footage that you just don't really see elsewhere, um, including these these shows. Because I guess the show was a tour that they did at the time um, that was like a package tour. Uh, it was probably like um, a lot of Def Jam, but I know Biggie was on it uh, and Run DMC made an appearance. Uh, but just some of these, uh, the the footage that they have of these like uh, Biggie shows are really, really like. Oh, priceless. God, this is like probably like a year out from him um, dying. Maybe two years. It's not, it's, it's not, it sounds like yeah, it must have been like right filmed around, around 94, maybe into early 95. But that sounds like the exact time it would have to be somewhere around there it, it would have been after wu-tang just started blowing up which would have been yeah so right that record comes out like yeah. the end of 93 um, so yeah this sounds like it's got to be 94 because ready or ready to die is 94 yeah it's gotta be 94 but but that's mm-hmm. like but that's like one of the great years for for rap so it's like god oh yeah absolutely i can't i can't uh, i've never seen this you know, this, this like sounds like this of... sounds truly amazing so you had to buy it you said so you had it's to find great. it on it's, eBay, I guess. Yeah, eBay or Amazon. I mean, don't shop at Amazon, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, something like that. I, I probably bought it for like four bucks. Same as meeting people is easy. The shipping, I probably got charged more for shipping than I did the DVD. Um, the show is actually something that I caught on cable somehow, and it lived on my TiVo forever. Like I refused to delete it off my TiVo. But it just has never been on streaming. I kept an eagle eye out for it. And since the pandemic, I've loved to have concert uh, uh, concert movies, concert footage, whatever, on in the background while I work. Um, so I've just been giving up and buying them instead of waiting. Um, another one of my favorites, although I've had this one on DVD for years, is uh, Part of the Weekend Never Dies. I no, I don't. What's that one? You know this one? That's soul. Oh, wax. Okay, yeah, I, I, I'm that. very familiar with like the label. Lyric slash sample from a soul wax song. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, soul wax are the two Danish dudes. They also. Oh are no, no, I was I was uh, thinking of Moax. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Okay. I, I, yeah, right. I do. I do uh, know soul wax though. I just kind of flipped it in my brain. 
Yeah, that's a great one because there's like little bits of appearances there from like members of LCD sound system and stuff. And they're also one of the greatest live acts I've ever seen. No question. This is like um, uh, like so uh, New York Excuse would be one of their big ones. NY Excuse, yeah. Yes, that's With Nancy that's like Wang. Their, yeah. yeah, if you know any of them, exactly. And they show they show her recording her part of that. Um, and and I think there's some bit where they basically. They, they roundabout confess that they really put that in there or recorded it in that way to like justify a trip for them to Europe <laughs> or some shit. That's what, <laughs> oh man, I didn't even realize Soul Wax would have a, a, a video or a concert movie. Documentary. It sounds like a documentary one. Yeah, they they they're 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 just kind of like self starters in that way, like empire builders in a sense, because they have uh they have Soul Wax, which is like their quote unquote band. Um, and then they have too many DJs, which is their oh, DJ one of the, one act, of the great uh, the two brothers going acts. out and DJing. Yes, one of the great mashup acts. Yep. Uh, and then uh, they have Radio Soul Wax, which has kind of been their internet concern that has evolved over time, like originally a streaming radio thing, but then it also became an app that they built. Um, where they they had like different mixes that were like themed in certain ways that were like 30 to 40 to an hour long each one. So you could kind of choose them as like channels on this like radio app. Um, and then they had while that app was I haven't looked at that app. I don't know what's happening with that. app. It might be dead. But during that era, they did a whole Bowie mix. And in conjunction with that, they co- they commissioned a film, a music video, essentially, for the entire Bowie mix that still lives on YouTube. It's incredible. Uh, I'm going to look this up right now. No, you know what I'm talking I, about? I have no idea. This? I mean, I don't I think that uh, probably like a lot of people, I guess I, I just kind of fell out of touch with Soul Wax. So, yeah, this I didn't I didn't even know they had an app or anything like that. It's just kind of I, I'm very I'm very. I'm always yeah, glad that I mean, people just kind of keep going like the, and the, keep making stuff. The and, stuff. You, you, and then like kind of then you, when you circle back to them, there's a whole treasure trove waiting for you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's called if, – if you go on YouTube and you search Radio Soul Wax Dave, you'll get the mix, which uh, on alone, it's just – it's a mix of pure Bowie. Yeah, it's a mix of pure Bowie. And then they have this like music video that's like a bunch of – Bowie-related iconography and imagery, um, and this this person uh, who who fits the mold of an androgynous Bowie perfectly, kind of like wandering through like reconstructions of like album covers. Wow. Okay, that right. is that is kind of a an apex level of fandom there for David Bowie. Oh yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah, exactly. Way above yeah. and beyond. <laughs> it's a it's. It's it's fan cam on a whole other level is what it is. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, we can kind of wrap around here. Um, do you want to do you want to plug anything? All right, you, man. you have a uh, you have a whole you have a lot of books out there. I do. I do have a lot of books out there. I, I have a lot of especially if you're not a comics fan, this this will make more sense that I have a lot of books out there that uh, are in, in trade paperback form. I'm trying to think like. If you're a music head, maybe if you're a Blackbird music nerd, with uh, like, Jen Bartel. One of my comics, Blackbird is a is a great one. Jen Bartel is uh, the co creator and artist on that one. It's a a, a magical realism uh, book. The, the 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 elevator pitch that uh, 
uh, my publisher would hate for me to use is that it's like Harry Potter if Harry Potter loved <laughs> whiskey. Like that's kind of the vibe. <laughs> and then um, and and Jen's art is absolutely beautiful and incredibly stylish. Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll mention Jonesy, which is a, a, a YA, like a, a, a young adult or, or an all ages book, um, just because there's um, a lot of music or music influences in there because uh, the main character Jonesy loves music. So there's an issue that's about her and her friend trying to sneak into a First Avenue style club to see their favorite uh, act who... Um, is kind of for me is kind of a mix of um, uh, Mitski and um, Kristen Control, who at the time was the lead singer of the Dum Dum Girls. Um, and also, you know, if uh, I don't know if this is still in print, but you're also the man who made uh, Psylocke uh, canonically bisexual. And that's in uh, Uncanny X Force. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I, 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 I did. See people I believe all the time on Twitter yep. just always being like, "Don't forget this." <laughs> <laughs> that's that that that's one that has aged very well i think or at least that uh that that character turn has aged very well in the age of krakoa um and it is one that like oddly i i don't know i'm not doing a good job of selling this it, it it's one that i look back on and i'm like man i was such a early writer doing this like i didn't know what i was doing but uh it's it's people who discover it now years later like are always tweeting at me how much they love it so i, I think it's probably a good one to go back to it's it's, it's one that has really had another life yeah years later. and i think you know that's that's saying a lot because i think a lot of uh particularly x-men stuff from that period not a lot of it is has uh been appreciated as much uh yeah. did we let's just say that fairly <laughs> comics in general like out of sight no mind <laughs> I, I took a lot of hits on uncanny x-force and uh I, I deserved some of them but uh there's so there's some other stuff in there that i, I still really like psylocke is just so like she's just a minefield like i love her as a character but she's yeah. just a minefield and um so whatever you do with her however you approach her especially in some of the problematic aspects of her character that have been Added over the years, and subtracted um, more recently. <laughs> it's and subtracted more recently as uh, the yes, now, yes. Psylocke's I mean, basically two separate characters. Howard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that's a good way to go about it. And I, I love Teeny Howard's work, and she's done a fantastic job with the character. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved and happy and enjoying the evolution of yeah. Psylocke. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Sam. I really appreciate it. Hey, dude, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate being on. This is fun. <laughs>